ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Kia ora koutou. Our guest today um, is perhaps one of New Zealand's most recognisable figures, Dr Ashley Bloomfield. He is the Chief Executive of the Ministry of Health and the country's Director General of Public Health. And of course, over the past year or so, he's become a very familiar face on our TV screens, often every day. As alongside Prime Minister Ardern, he was steering New Zealand's public health response to COVID-19. And of course, winning plaudits for his calm leadership throughout. And I think that lots of New Zealanders, including those who are celebrating out at Cuba Dupa, festival on the weekend thank him for the relatively normal COVID-free life that they are able to lead. So Dr Bloomfield is a graduate of Auckland University and a specialist in non-communicable disease prevention and control and he spent time working in Geneva at the World Health Organization before taking up a number of senior roles in the Ministry of Health back here in New Zealand. And of course uh, his leadership of the COVID response saw him catapulted very much into the spotlight, unusual for a public servant, um, and he has a devoted following of fans including I think some tea towels with your face on them. So anyway, Ashley, no my hairamai. It's a real pleasure to have you here on Tea with the High Commission today. So thank you very much for joining us. Nā mihi Thank you very much. And kia ora koutou katoa. Wonderful. Thank you. So let's start with your leadership of, of COVID, with the COVID pandemic um, and the New Zealand's management of it. Uh, your leadership's been very much commended and rightly so. And I wonder if you can start by telling us a little bit about your personal leadership style and philosophy. Thanks for that. Yes, the, the pandemic's an unusual situation. Mm. And I guess it's, if anything, it brings into stark relief just uh, how it is that you are going to lead and what your leadership style is. And, mm. and I've been reflecting on the last year because at the time, as you're in the moment, you don't necessarily reflect on mm. it. A lot of it is intuitive. Yeah. But what I, I would say is that my, my natural leadership style, and it's one that sort of underpins the way the health system works anyway, is very much convening and collaborating. So we talk about the, the role of the Ministry of Health, and I've been clear about this since I started there nearly two and a half years ago. Our role is our approaches to convene and collaborate. It's not command and control. Mm. Mm. Now, in a pandemic situation, of course, where sometimes you need to be quite directive. Uh, actually, in the last year, I've probably de uh, deployed that directive style more than I would have uh, through the entire part of my, in my earlier career. And in, interestingly, that was welcomed. At at when it was deployed at the right times, it was welcomed by my colleagues and they quite encouraged that. So I, I think one of the, the key learnings for me and one of the things I've been reflecting on is that importance as a leader of deploying the right style depending on the situation. Mm. Mm. Sometimes you just do have to say, actually, there's no room to, to negotiate on this. We just have to do this. And I found people really responsive. Mm. I think the other thing I've really reflected on is when you're in a situation like a global pandemic, there's so little you can control, and it's so it's the it's the big le it's the great leadership challenge, which is incomplete information. In fact, almost no information, but huge decisions that you have to advise on. And so, I've reflected on well, what is it you can always control? And the thing you can always control, of course, is your behaviours, mm -hmm. how you come across, mm -hmm. how you respond, and our behaviours are anchored in our values. So it's really made me reflect on 
values-based leadership and the importance of being really clear at a personal level and, of course, at an organisational level, what are those core values that then underpin your behaviours, especially in this sort of situation when the chips really are down. That's really interesting. And yeah, I know that you've, all, you've studied a leadership programme at the Side Business School in Oxford, and that's presumably quite a lot on the um, conceptual frameworks of leadership. So how much, how much do you really just go in a more intuitive way, and how much do you draw on the literature of leadership? Well, it's both, and the, the, the course I did in Oxford at, at the, towards the end of 2017, the timing was perfect. It was about six months before I uh, took on this role, although I didn't know that at the time, and it was just a week, uh, but it was the perfect timing really for me, and some of the, the faculty there were just top class, uh, fantastic people, and I... I, I still use some of the key lessons from that course in my day-to-day -day work now. And this notion of values-based leadership and, and the point I just made about control, one of the uh, lecturers there talked about actually in any situation is about 15% of the context that you can personally control. And so you have two objectives. One is to make sure you're maximising your 15%. And secondly, that you're, you're influencing those who are controlling other aspects of the context. Of course, in a global pandemic, it's way less than 15%. Yeah. And so, again, that's what anchored it back in the, yeah. in the, in the behaviours and just the, the strategic aspects to it and the really the, the broad range of faculty and the range of activities we did was just compelling and also really influential in my day-to-day my -day leadership. Let me go back. You sp spent a year working at the World Health Organization in Geneva, um, which, of course, has been in the spotlight as well during this pandemic. How has that work, working on those global issues, impacted your current work? Yeah, so uh, it was a huge privilege to work at the WHO, and I developed some linkages and contacts there through my participation on New Zealand delegations there over a number of years, and in particular, uh, ironically, in the non-communicable disease side of things. Uh, and I've done another stint back there for three months in 2015 where I was asked to come back and help, help on a, piece, a specific piece of work, again, on non-communicable diseases. But the links are there and the relationships are there. And I, I, put, I, know, I put my cards on the table. I'm a huge fan of multilateralism. And whilst the WHO at times when I work there and at times subsequently frustrates me a lot, I am uh, absolutely convinced that the world is a better place with these multilateral institutions, and particularly, particularly when you get these global issues that require a global response, that require um, collective leadership. Um, it's, an, it's an imperative that we, we do act collectively. And that's also the same for many of the non-communicable diseases, the, the drivers, the risk factors like tobacco and the, the whole food environment and access to physical activity. They are, they are global factors, they have global players and therefore they do need a collective response. So again, I think the WHO's role is a, an essential one. I know it's been criticised, um, actually not just by one party, but a number of parties in its response to this pandemic, but I've been following very closely the advice from WHO and and anchored a lot of New Zealand's response in the advice they've provided. And of course, no international system is perfect. No international organisation is perfect, but at least actually you've got the foundations there for coming together and discussing and forming international responses to yeah. challenges like this. 
Tell me a bit, because it's your area of specialty and it's a fascinating area, the area of non-communicable diseases, you know, because that, of course, it covers smoking-related diseases, obesity, whole range of other things. And that then brings in... Uh, much more than health policy, it's, pub it's public policy writ large, isn't it? You know, what you do in terms of advertising, what you do in terms of education, all that sort of thing. What are the, what are the biggest worries for you in terms of non-communicable diseases? So non-communicable diseases account for uh, by far the largest proportion of, of the global burden of disease, and not just in high-income countries. They do in ev even the lowest of income in countries because uh, the drivers are the ones that underpin a range of diseases, including heart disease, cancers, respiratory diseases. And uh, as you've noted, you know, these, many of these risk factors are, are within the control, not of individual countries. So the tobacco industry, for example, and I've done a lot of work in tobacco control, it's a global industry and it carries enormous power. It's enormously wealthy and very influential. And so the, uh, the, the public health response to tobacco control couldn't just rely on the, the, the typical suite of public health tools. It did, as, you, as you've said, need to go right across government. It needs economic uh, and fiscal policy. It needs to look at education. Uh, it needs to reach right into people's homes to really support people uh, to keep their homes smoke-free. So, uh, and, and this is the same with, of course, um, addressing obesity, which you know, is arguably the biggest public health challenge of our generation. And interestingly, and, and it's right to call it a pandemic because it is, the obesity pandemic is of relatively rapid onset. It's only happened in the last 30 years. And I guess what that suggests is if we collectively do the right things, we can address the underlying drivers of it and actually turn it around. But that is going to require really strong collective leadership. And I think that's where the World Health Organization and other UN bodies need to play a critical role. Whole of system responses, of system. absolutely. Yeah. Let me come back to, to the COVID response and to vaccines, where uh, New Zealand's rollout is now tracking well. Um, and in the UK, we've seen real success. We've now um, vaccinated, I think, upwards of 40% of our uh, population. My mum got hers a while back, which was a great relief. And of course, both our countries are working hard to ensure the vaccine's available around the world through the COVAX facility and our an overall development assistance. But of course, getting the vaccine and rolling it out is only part of it because we've got a real um, issue of vaccine hesitancy and also, of course, anti-vax campaigners. What can governments do to address that sort of misinformation and disinformation? And again, how does that come back to the international response? Yeah, there's quite a lot in this. Uh, one thing I would reflect on is our, our success here in New Zealand last year around the, uh, the elimination strategy was predicated on really good communication. And the fact that we were able within a space of seven to eight weeks to convince the population that uh, when the Prime Minister asked them to go home <laughs> and stay at home, no one said why. Actually, everyone had been taken on the journey, so they understood the why. And I think what was powerful there is that, and it's a powerful leadership lesson, very often we spend too much trying, time trying to tell people the what and the how rather than really being clear about the why and that collective and that common sense of purpose. And fast forwarding to this year, that's our challenge again. People don't need us necessarily to keep telling them what and how, but it's the why and that understanding of 
the benefits of vaccination for them individually, for their families in Fano, and for the wider community, for our country. And our success in 2020 was predicated on people acting in each other's interests. And in a sense, we need them to also do that with the vaccine this year. Regarding vaccine hesitancy, I had an interesting conversation with one of our leaders here in New Zealand in the area of vaccines, Dr Nikki Turner, and she was on the, the World Health Organization group that coined this term his vaccine hesitancy, and she's now moving away from it. Because the, the trick here is not to give too much credence or airtime to the conspiracy theorists or to the misinformation or to those who are constantly trying to sort of um, fertilise the story of hesitancy. Actually, the story is one of acceptance. And we've had a great initial success here in New Zealand with our border workforce. Well over 90% of them have taken up the opportunity. So in my mind, that creates the opportunity and the challenge for us. It shows that if you give people good information, if you give them a really good experience, and if you make it easy to access the vaccine, then most people will come and be vaccinated, and especially if they trust those who are telling them about the benefits. And I think, you know, going back to what you're saying about last year and the, and the comms um, approach to it, a public health crisis is a communications crisis as well, isn't it? Because you are getting people to change their behaviours, change their calculations and think about the, the, collective, the collective good. Yeah, you need to be honest with people. And I get many New Zealanders now come up to me to thank our team for what yeah. we've done. And including at Cuba Duper over the weekend, oh, people were just thrilled that they could all be out in a crowd of 120,000 people and they wanted to thank the team through me which is lovely but you know the feedback I get is really interesting is that the reason they trusted us was not because we said we know everything or this is what we know it was, was because we were prepared to say actually we don't know or it's not clear and when it, as we got further into the response that didn't go right and we're going to fix it or we've changed our mind because there's new evidence. And it was that willingness to be open and honest that built the trust. Now, it's not something that necessarily uh, governments or pu pub the public services used to doing. We like to have all the answers. We like to have everything in neatly wrapped and tied up in a bow. Um, but I think that is, a, that is a key pointer for us this year with the vaccine. Actually, yes, it's not 100% effective and it's not going to be all we need to do, but we're really confident we've got a, a good safe, effective vaccine and we're going to make it available to all New Zealanders and we're going to provide them with really good information. And I dare say you talked about the success so far in Britain. Uh, we're, we're looking to that to try and learn from that and I think that there has been great success there in really scaling up their operation there and we're looking to, to emulate some of, the, some of the ways they've done that there. So one of the, I mean, there are so many side effects, of course, of the pandemic, you know, economic, of course, uh, a whole range. But one of the one of the big issues, of course, has been mental health um, related problems. So I wonder, just moving away from COVID a bit, can you talk a little bit about He Ara Oranga, which was the report on mental health in New Zealand, uh, which was done in 2018, I think, um, and its main recommendations and, and what the latest is there? Yes, yeah, so we were... I guess we had this gift uh, in late 2018 of this report, Heara Oranga, uh, a very thorough review uh, with a lot of consultation across the community of uh, issues around mental health and addiction and some very clear pointers as to how we should as a country address those issues. And I think just two areas I really want to point out. One area that the 
the report found was a gap in our service provision was this provision of, of services for people with mild to moderate mental health issues who couldn't access anything if they visited their general practitioner or through a school or through a, an, an NGO provider like a Māori Pacific provider. And so there was this sort of gap in services and we've rolled out this new model. We c it's under the rubric, it's called access and choice. But it's really these people who've got some training, they're not qualified mental health practitioners, not fully qualified psychologists, but they've got some training and it's possible then if someone does come along and very often people come to see their, or go to see their general practitioner and there is a mental health component to what they've come to, to, to actually talk about. And the fact the GP's then able to hand over the person, say, well, I've got someone just down the hallway who can see you and have a half-hour conversation. And what we found in the piloting of this uh, approach was even just a, a half or a one-hour initial consultation and someone able to go away with some, some tools and some online resources, for most people that was all they needed and it really just helped address the immediate issues. So there was this gap in service provision and we've the government's committed to and is making a bit big investment to, to close that gap. I think the other really important theme from Heyara Oranga was this idea that it's not just about the health system. Mm. Men mental health and wellbeing is a, is a whole of society um, issue and therefore requires a whole of society response. And it goes into our workplaces, into our education institutions, it goes to, to the media and just how the role that the, role that the media plays and in particular the, the role the media plays around suicide and suicide prevention. So there's a lot of work to do there and we really do need to, I think, both in New Zealand and elsewhere, transform our approach to addressing mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. and, a, and a big part of that is is this, we've still got a journey around destigmatizing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been really impressed over the last year or two where prominent New Zealanders have been prepared to come out and talk about their experience of of anxiety or of, of depression or of stress and try and normalise this. And I think that's very important for, for our young people particularly. Um, and of course, in that spirit of us sort of talking frankly about you know challenges across the board, you've spoken publicly about the, the moments of self-doubt that you had in that you know, heat of that COVID crisis, because of course, no, you know, it's a, a tough gig for anyone to be thrown into leading the response to a pandemic like that. So. Can you talk about how you how you got through that? Yes, it was a very challenging time, and it continues to be challenging. And I uh, I talk about actually for those first few weeks, and I, I'm glad I wasn't alone because I've read accounts of others who were in similar roles who felt the same thing. It, it was happening at such pace, and there was so much uncertainty. I can remember sort of that that feeling of waking up at three and three in the morning in a cold sweat, thinking, "Oh my goodness, where is this going?" Uh, and, you know, the interesting thing I realised is, uh, first of all, I wasn't alone. And so feelings of sort of self-doubt, and, and some people talk about imposter syndrome, um, and, uh, and it's common. Uh, and, and the main reason for that is we're our own worst critics. We're very hard on ourselves. And so I think it was that realisation, look, actually every country's in the same position. I've, I've trained... I've got a range of experience and I've got great people around me who I can work with and work and get their advice. And so just trust, I guess, trusting myself, backing myself was, was really important. And, and, and one morning I just woke up and thought, well, all I've got to do each day is just get up and face what's coming, coming down the pitch at me, to use a cricket yeah. analogy, yeah. and just play a straight bat. Yeah. And, and that was really helpful. 
but also as the year went by recognizing when the stress was building because it, it, it did and standing up in front of the media for what sometimes felt like a daily performance review on live on on national television did did build up stress because there was so much mental preparation for that and then and then and then a sense of quite feeling quite exhausted afterwards so I also learned a lot about resilience and, and came up with this idea that actually resilient people are not the ones that just keep going they're the ones that know their limits yeah. and they recognize when they need to recharge physically and emotionally and mentally and so being really much more in tune with myself perhaps than I'd ever had to be before. Because I think the big thing is is having that self-awareness, right? So that you spot it upstream when it is building too much and then do something about it. So have you got any top tips for people who feel that sort of wave coming at them? Well, the top tips from me are, first of all, as you've said, being self-aware and so checking in on yourself and also having people that will check in on you and in particular family members because they will know they will be able to read the signs and just say actually actually you probably need to step back uh, and take a bit of a break so I think listening to the people around you but also being quite meticulous and planned about having breaks about having weekends off uh, not being afraid to hand over to others to to pick up the load and they will do so gladly and also knowing, just reminding yourself that um, when there's a lot at stake, it's really important you're on your game and that you can give the best possible advice. And if you're stressed or too tired or too run down, actually you won't be able to do that. So it's in everyone's interest that yeah. you do so. I read something recently about how the aspiration should be to a life that is eight, 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 eight hours sleep, eight hours work, eight hours leisure. Now, I think we're all probably a way off from that, but it's quite nice to reflect that actually none of us are designed to work all the time. And you wouldn't want a surgeon operating on you if he'd been working 17 hours a day. And you also wouldn't want a public health response to be led by someone who was over, overstretched. So it's how we look after ourselves. Yeah, and I think it's a metaphor really for balance, isn't it? Yeah. Making sure we are balancing our, our work with our personal health yeah. needs so that we can be our best self. And also with those things that really matter in life. And one thing ironically that the, the lockdown I think reminded us all about last year was the importance of, um, of family and, and as part of our well-being as individuals. And it was a stark reminder of, of, for many people of, gosh, we fill our lives with so much busyness that we don't necessarily take the time to yeah. spend time just good quality yeah. being. With, with our family and those close to us. So listen, we're, thank you so much for, for, for this corridor, for this conversation. Um, I've got a last question, which is, you know, we've in the past we've asked our guests on this podcast what it is uh, that worries them or keeps them up at night, but I feel like we've got such a rich menu of things to worry about. So my question is, uh, where do you find um, optimism? What gives you cause for optimism looking forward? Oh, I'm a naturally optimistic person, and so I, I have to have people around me who temper my optimism. <laughs> but if you'd asked me a year ago, or, to, or perhaps suggested to me that within a year we would have not one, but more than one highly safe, highly effective vaccines that were being rolled out uh, globally and had been delivered safely to tens of millions of people, and that we had already started rolling that in New out in New Zealand, I would have not put any money on that. So I think the fact that we have 
collectively again as a as a as a as a globe come together private and public investment and brain power and manufacturing capacity to uh, deliver this result is quite remarkable it gives me great hope for the f for the future and we need to temper that hope with and make sure we are continuing to act collectively not just as individual countries but but as a, as a, as global citizens and uh, as WHO keeps reminding us, um, no country is safe until everyone is safe. And so we must continue to pursue um, absolutely relentlessly uh, the, the solidarity that is needed behind making vaccines available to the entire globe. And that um, is of course a challenge, but also one I think we can look forward to with great hope. Yeah, absolutely, because we're all in this together. Well, kanui to mihi kia koe. Thank you very much, Ashley. It's been lovely to talk to you and enjoy the rest of your day. Kia ora, ngā mihi. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Ka kite anō.